First John chapter four. And I know we asked last time, but I'll ask again. Conrad knows what I'm going to ask and the answer to what I'm going to ask. So go ahead, Conrad. What? What's the question? God is love and God is light. Well done. That's, a, that's apparently what that picture means. So God is compared to two things as we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, in the uh, epistle of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, those two things are God is love and God is light. John begins his, his book, this letter here, by talking about how to walk in the light, how God is the light. And we've just pivoted to the second section, which is uh, expounding on this idea that God is in fact love. Uh, and so that's where we will we'll be today. And uh, before we do that, I do want to say a prayer. Uh, Miss Betty is heading uh, to Africa this week. We just want to pray for her to have a safe journey, a safe flight. And she heads back to uh, take care of some business and see her family. So let's go ahead and say a prayer. Uh, dear God, we say, uh, we just want to pray to you this morning, God, that you can speak, speak through me, God. Please give me the words to say, God, as we deliver, as I deliver your, your message. God, I pray the Spirit can prick our hearts this morning. And we pray, God, for our sister to, uh, to have safe travels. Uh, God, we pray that everything is taken care of on that front. We pray, God, as Christmas comes, that we are able to take care of those around us, God, and to give to others and um, to bring others into the family and to be able to really uh, not just know that you are love, but to be able to reflect that love ourselves. So we, we thank you for these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so 1 John chapter 4. We're going to go into a, a pretty awesome passage today. It's, it's one of the big kahunas. And so that'll be a blast. Um, before that, um, in 1977, I don't know if everyone can see this photo, but in 1977... It was a particularly foggy day in the Canary Islands, and there was a, a 747 that was uh, that misunderstood a command. It was a Dutch flight, misunderstood an English command to begin to take off through the fog. Uh, there was in the path of this plane that's trying to take off another plane, perpendicular, uh, that they that and they could not see each other uh, because of some some uh, mistakes. So the the plane that's taking off goes straight through the other plane. Uh, both catch fire and start to, you know, they're both filled with obviously jet fuel. They're about to both take off. And they both catch fire and are begin to burn. It's the lar largest aviation disaster in history. Uh, 583 people died uh, this day in 1977 in the Canary Islands. And one, one of the few survivors, there were 61 survivors, one of the survivors recalled that uh, when the plane first caught fire, uh, you saw everyone react um, in a certain way. And what actually happens then is often with fires, people don't die from the actual fire, they die from the smoke. And people, you began to actually, so as few people made it and they exited the plane, they could hear the screaming, but after about 30 seconds to a minute, you heard silence. Everybody had died inside. And one of the survivors had reflected that he, he saw a wide range of people as they approach death. Some people were cursing God. Some people were yelling, screaming. They were angry. Uh, and some people, he remembered, um, were at peace and were very calm and ready to, ready to, to, to face death, uh, even as they saw that it wasn't possible to survive. And he remembered, 
just asking himself, what was the big difference between the, the people and how they responded to death? And I, I couldn't help but myself think, what, what would I, how would I respond in a situation like this? And fear is a very powerful motivator in our lives. Um, and it's a very powerful motivator, especially when our lives are coming uh, to an end. And so today we're going to talk about uh, that exact thing. We're going to talk about fear and its relevance in our life and in our, its relevance in our relationship with God. And as we face the end, and all of us don't know, none of us know when the end will come. Um, and so John wants to prepare his family of churches here in, the, in, in his letter to face that day of judgment and to be able to face it with peace, with confidence, and with calm, which is really an incredible thing to imagine, and not fear and anger and strife. Um, and so uh, Jesus talks a lot about this uh, throughout the Gospels. He talks about heaven and hell. We don't talk about heaven and hell a lot. Heaven and hell is not a very popular idea nowadays. Uh, even, even amongst Christians, you'd be surprised this, this gospel of being a good person. And, uh, you know, and, and we really struggle our uh, 21st century postmodern, post-enlightenment, Western consciences struggle quite a bit with the idea of hell. Yeah. We don't like it at all. If you ask anybody actually uh, from a Middle Eastern or a traditional culture, they're quite fine with the idea of, of hell and judgment. They're actually, they, they, their, their consciences are usually uh, struck by this idea of forgiveness. Uh, in a Middle Eastern or a traditional culture, revenge and justice is very important. And so forgiveness doesn't make sense to them. And so for us, we just got to remember that our perspective is based heavily on our culture and not because we have the, we have the, the knowledge of all truth and all evil. And so we, because we live in a Western society where everything is relative and everything's important, which means nothing really is that important, then uh, we can't, it's hard to imagine the duality of an afterlife. But Jesus, nonetheless, he brings it home every time as he preaches to his people to not forget that they are going somewhere. And here he says in Matthew uh, 25, and throw that worthless slave, this is after the parable of the talents or the bags of gold, the one who does not actually invest his bag of gold. Jesus says, and throw that worthless slave into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so if you don't invest the bag of gold, this is where you're headed. How about Mark uh, 9? I believe it's verse 48. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where, there will, where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. You know, we had a teen sleepover Friday and I had, we had a fire in our fireplace and uh, we just bought the house so I don't have the, uh, the fire poker and the stuff to, uh, to, to, to fix the fire right with when, it, when, it's, when it's hot. And so I, and there was a piece of log that had shifted and it wasn't in the right spot. So I was like, it looked like it was, you know, not, not that hot. So I thought I'll just, I'll rearrange it really quickly and strategically with my, with my hand. Um, and, uh, so anyway, you can imagine how that went, but I remember thinking, okay, this really hurts. And I put my hand in, in cold water for like a few minutes and, um, and it got better after like five, 10 minutes. But then I remember this passage I thought where the fire never goes out. Yeah. And I, and I thought of that and like, okay, five minutes was tough enough, but the place where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out, 
And Jesus says, that's why you got to deal with your sin. That's why you got to take a, a really, really strong stance on sin because we're all going somewhere. And that's, that, that's a reality. And how that looks, we don't really know, but we know we're going somewhere and there's a duality to our destinations. Yeah. And so my lesson today is called Fear Factor. Uh, there used to be a, a show uh, called Fear Factor hosted by Joe Rogan. Um, and I love that show. I used to watch it after school and you'd come on the show. There was actually a, a sister from the Atlanta Church of Christ, our sister church in Atlanta, uh, that was on the show. Uh, I remember because um, you could tell who she was by how she dressed. It was very different. She was very modest in her dress. It was actually really obvious. Uh, I remember even as a kid being like, that one's different. And oh yeah, she's actually, anyway, so pretty amazing. But she actually won uh, uh, her episode of Fear Factor. But they would always bring, you know, they'd bring out like uh, something horrible to eat. Like they had the hottest peppers in the world. And then you had, I remember one, they had to bob for apples in this tank of of snakes. Uh, And they had all these things, you know, the height, all these different fears they play on. And at the end, if you won, you got to stand there with Joe Rogan. And he would say, evidently, fear is not a factor for you. And then they'd roll credits. And um, it was always like that cool moment right at the end when that person would win. Um, they had overcome their fears. They had triumphed over eating something horrible and, and height and uh, claustrophobia. And they had, they had triumphed over fear. And he would always say, evidently, fear is not a factor uh, for you. Uh, so anyway, I used to like that show. But I began to think about us. What uh, role does fear play uh, in our walks with Jesus and in our walks with God? It's in our lives. Fear is a very powerful motivator. If you think about it through the evolution of man, fear is a very important impulse because it keeps us alive. Right. Um, if you're hunting, you know, uh, an animal and, um, it's, it's, and that animal turns to attack you, fear is an important impulse to stay alive so that then you can have kids and then they can have kids and you can, you know, perpetuate the species, right? You can, a, lot, a lot of us, fear is very important. People who don't have a good sense of fear don't usually last too long. And so fear is a very powerful, it's a very important motivator. But sometimes it can begin to play uh, a, a negative role in our lives. Yeah. And it can also become an emotion that we are enslaved to without really knowing it. Yeah. And especially as a young man, I remember thinking, I'm not, af- I'm not afraid of anything. I don't fear anything, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe we can think that too as, as young people or just as, as people, we think, I'm, I'm not afraid of very much, right? I don't, have, I don't, have, I'm not, I don't fear different, these things. Um, but all of us have fear and all of us uh, are living making decisions based on that fear in one way uh, or another. And it's important to be able to isolate that because as Peter says in, in his book, First Peter, uh, a, a person is a slave to whatever has mastered them. Uh, and so as we think about in, in ourselves, a lot of us have emotions that have mastered us. And to be able to find out which emotions have mastered us um, so, so that we're not unwittingly slaves to our own hearts and our own insecurities uh, and, and we're unaware of that, of that very thing. Um, and so fear for us is a very, important, it's a very important topic. It's a massive topic. We won't be able to dive into all of it today. You probably, I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but a passage like we're about to read um, versus the one like in Philippians that says, uh, you know, live out your, your life here uh, with fear and, tre- and trembling. And then it's important to fear God. Uh, and so we can say, oh, I don't really get how to fear God. Well, fear... Uh, the, so there's a difference between being afraid of God and having reverence for God. Yeah. And so that's the distinction that uh, the biblical authors often make. Is if you're afraid of somebody versus you have reverence for them or you're in awe of them, is a very different feeling. It's important to, be, to have reverence for God, yeah. 
for, because of who he is and his power and his, gra- his gravity, his, 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 uh, his span of influence. But it's not, it's not good. We shouldn't. Uh, God does not will us to be afraid of him, uh, to be in fear of him. And so perhaps it's best that we start reading now in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. John writes through the Holy Spirit in 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, or whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love. There it is, Conrad. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. I want to paraphrase that. So one and only son is this phrase. It's not a great phrase uh, to be brought into English because we think of an only child. But uh, it's actually the, the, the phrase in Greek is a one of a kind. And I like that. So I'm going to read it that way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one of a kind son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And if we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. There it is. So that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And John does something here where he kind of, he, he does this a couple times in his letter where he emotes. He kind of loses control a bit and goes back to something he already addressed in a lot of ways. So he starts talking again about loving each other. But he begins to back up and say, hold on, we have to love each other. But before we can really do that, we've got to really get in touch with where love originates. And we've got to be able to love God and understand his love for us. Sort of a triangle in that way. Uh, and we, we got to be held in, in, in tight tension in the middle of that triangle and not drifting too far to, I got to love other people or I got to really know God's love for me or I got to really love a God. But we got to be in tension. All three work together. And John's trying to help us understand that. But I want to zoom in on one part of this text. I don't want to take long to do it today, but I want to keep it simple to one important aspect because there's a lot here 
as John continues his amplification of trying to help us understand what it means to love. And that is that all-important phrase, the fear or the day of judgment. How do you feel when you think about the day of judgment? Um, how do you feel when you have uh, your boss tell you to come in for a, um, uh, 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 what's it called? Um, performance review. There it is. Performance review, uh, uh, an exam, a final, a midterm, an examination. Uh, how do you feel about performance reviews, right? I mean, even that is enough to say, you know, what if we had different perspectives? What if he saw something or she saw something that I didn't see? What if... What if I get fired? What if, and so even just that is enough to give us a pit in the stomach. Think about the ultimate performance review, the ultimate day of judgment to a God who happens to be, by the way, all-knowing. So he knows things that you don't even know. That's like the worst kind of performance reviewer. That's the worst kind of boss. He knows that you sin. You don't even know you sin, and he knows. How doesn't it, at first glance, give us a lot of confidence? How can anyone stand up to a performance review from an all-knowing, omnipotent God? But yet, John says that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. How? How in the world can any of you, and don't sit there like, well, I'm pretty good. You're not that good. You're not even close to that good. None of you are. Not even the best of us is a, is a, a far cry from anything remotely Jesus. In fact, as Jesus is approached by the rich young man in Mark 10, and the rich young man calls him good teacher, what does Jesus say? No one is good except God alone. No, what are you doing, man? You know how you fish for compliments, like, um, like hoping that someone will compliment you back? Like you're wearing a new shirt, but no one's told you yet, so you go, hey, nice shirt. <laughs> oh, this old thing, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, I just got it. It's very nice. It's on sale. So you kind of fish for that little compliment Well, the rich young ruler in, in, in Mark 10 is like, hey, good teacher. And Jesus goes, bro, come on. You, you, you're not that good. I'm not going to give that back at you because there's only one standard of godliness and it's God and not any of us. Yeah. So how can we, a fallen people, a sinful people, a people who struggle every day just to read our Bible, a people who are struggling every day just to put God first, how can we put confidence, how can we have confidence in the day of the ultimate performance review? And yet John tells us that we can. Confidence is an important thing. It's not so that you can like be deceived and like God will like overlook some things, but you can be confident. When's the last time you were confident about something? You know, like about that one thing that you were confident, you, you felt like, yes, I got this. I, I, I know this backwards uh, and forwards. Bring it on. Ask me any questions. I know I've seen uh, that show uh, all eight seasons, 11 times. And I know who dated who in episode three of season four. Ask me anything you want. And did you know about the actress who originally played the girl in the show that she actually turned down the role? And like, you, you know, a show really well. You're like, I'm confident. I know it. Bring it on. I don't know about you, but that's a hard one to really grasp in regard to the day of judgment. And there's no real ultimate redo here. When God judges, he judges. Uh, as in Luke 13 reminds us, uh, there will be one final call. Uh, there will be a day of reckoning for all of us. And we don't know when that day is. Some of us, it'll be when we're very old. Some of us, it could be very soon. Uh, we don't know when it is. But the call is to not just be ready, but the encouraging thing is, is our God wants us to be confident. Uh, and that, that's a challenge for all of us.
the, the phrase uh, fear has to do with punishment is an interesting phrase. Uh, and I want to zoom in on this part of the text in verse 17, uh, that this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In the world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. There's no phobos, uh, phobia. There's no phobia in agape. There's no phobia in agape, but perfect agape drives out phobia because phobia has to do with punishment. Um, and so there's two things that it could mean. Fear has to do with punishment. And I'm fascinated by both. The first is uh, that fear, the, the original phrase means fear is its own punishment. Uh, which we could then read it as, uh, there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear because fear is its own punishment. Uh, I've shared this before. It's a great uh, example of fear. Uh, in 1523, uh, the Spanish show up in South America and there's this great emperor of the Incans named uh, uh, Atahualpa. And Atahualpa is this uh, incredible god king in their eyes. He's on one of those um, uh, uh, still things where they hold the, you know, the, um, the platform and they bring him uh, there on, on top. You can see him at the top uh, there. He's the emperor. He's got uh, 7,000 Incans around him, all whom are, are armed in some way, probably with clubs or, or spears or something like that. Uh, and so the, the 7,000 Incans show up and they see... 170, so 7,000, 170, place your bets now. So 170 Spanish show up uh, with, with guns and with swords. The Incans are ambushed by the Spanish. The Incans are so afraid of what they're seeing. This is a battle-hardened uh, crew uh, it's Atahualpa's best. It's his, it's his army. They're the, they're the, uh, the apex of, of force in South America. And they've seen battle. They've seen war. They've seen people die. But they see 170 Spanish with things they've never seen before. Guns. Uh, the Spanish had tied uh, bells to their horses to incite fear amongst them. They had dressed, obviously, in, in, in uniforms. It looked very different. The Incans were so afraid. They had never seen anything like this. What began to happen is that the Incans uh, ran away. Can you imagine 7,000 7, people? I don't care if 170 people have bazookas. 7,000 people could overpower them. It's just numbers. But because they're so afraid, they do what's most illogical and that, will, and that, that, is, that guarantees death. They run away. They trample each other in fear. They actually try to hide in these big piles of each other and suffocate each other. They, and then Atahualpa is captured. Pizarro, the leader of the Spanish, drives uh, he rides on his horse straight through and just captures him. Just grabs him off this platform and captures him. And so you can see that a gun is not the greatest tool, the greatest weapon, neither is a sword. It's fear. Fear is the greatest weapon. Even though they had every reason to succeed, they lost the battle of confidence. They were afraid. And they died. 5,000 of them died that day because they were afraid. And in most cases, it was for two reasons. They, didn't, they were afraid of what they didn't understand. And there was a mass hysteria. You know how when you're, you're you may be confident, but your friends around you are not? Yeah. And then how do you, what happens to you? Well, you don't get very confident. It's called mass hysteria. It's called mob mentality. Everyone begins to react to everyone else. Yeah. So you may go into like your Bible talk feeling pretty good, but if the rest of the Bible talk is frantic, and, 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 and fearful, 
it's going to have an impact on you. If you're a small group, like I, it's going to have an impact on you if, if, there's fee, if it's a fear-based group and not a faith-based group. Okay? And so this, this, this isn't just a struggle that affects us individually. This affects us as a church. It affects, it affects everyone in your family. If you're a mother who's driven by fear, it affects your whole family. If you're a father who, who, who's driven by, by insecurity, it's going to affect your whole family, your marriage, your friendships. And no matter which church you go to and what new people you make friends with, you bring that heart of fear right along with you and you begin the rest of your life. And we all know people like this and we all are people like this that have fear be a really strong influence in our lives. And this is such a, a, a powerful analogy for us because it helps us realize that if fear was Pizarro's greatest weapon, what's going to be Satan's? It's going to be fear. If he can cause us to be afraid, he can get us to do whatever he wants. And how many of us have made, you know, maybe there's some of us this morning who have not yet made the decision to go after living like a disciple, being a Christian. What fear is preventing you from doing that? There's some of us this morning who've been uh, maybe just waiting around for years. But because you're afraid, I don't know if I can live up to the standard. I'm afraid I'll fail. What if I just sin again? What if I mess up again? What if I blow it? What if I'm not good enough? What if I find something better? What if I, what if I, I you know, what if people aren't nice to me? What if someone hurts my feelings? What if, what if, what if, what if, and fear begins to drive our decisions? And so we never become a Christian and Satan gets us to think we're really independent, but no, you're a slave. Yeah, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, we know this one, right? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And it can, we can think, you know what, I'm just not a Christian yet because of my own choices. Satan is playing you like a fiddle. He's got you down to, and you don't even know it. And a lot of us, you ever like, you think that it was, someone's asked you a question and it, you realize just how much this uh, uh, a spirit or this motivator has been driving your whole life. What if I, what if I end up like my mom? What if I have a marriage like my parents? What if I, in all these fears, they stop us. And that's why the Bible says fear is its own punishment. Fear is its own torture. Being apart from God is its own torment. And as we talk about fear being its own punishment, if Satan can get us to live in fear, he's got us in hell already. A lot of people think they're going to hell. You know, C.S. Lewis writes, if you're apart from God, you're already there because you're not experiencing what you could experience in God's presence, which is love and light. But distance from God is all... And that's, that's the... Uh, in in C.S. Lewis's book about heaven and hell, the great divorce, people in hell don't even realize they're there. They go, this is all we have. This is as good as it gets. And he goes, no, there's something better, but they don't even want to believe it's better. They're so, they're so enslaved to uh, the way they're used to things. And that's how we can get, even now, we can live in fear, we can live in hell now. And fear is its own punishment. And fear can cause us to do a great number of things. I just want to list a few. It can make us feel inadequate. Fear can, I, I'm not going to do that because I'm not good enough. I'm not going to lead the Bible study because I'm not good enough. I'm not going to sepa, uh, speak the truth to my friend because... You know, I make mistakes too, and, and you know, we all struggle, and we get the fear of inadequacy and feeling like we have to arrive in our performance before we can start to be honest with each other can actually cripple us and stop us from being able to live the life that God wants us to live. 
We can have a fear of not being enough. That's a big one for me. I, I, I want to succeed. One of my big idols in life that I struggle with is success. I have an idol of success. I want to win at everything. Some of you are going, I, I know, Drew. We've been trying to talk to you about that for a couple years now. And Well, I know I'm, I'm right there with you. I know I want to win at everything, whether it's a, a, a really dumb card game or a really important something other card game. I don't know. I want to win everything. I hate losing. I hate not being enough. It kills me. So I have a fear of not being enough. What if I fail as a minister? What if I fail as a husband? What if I fail as a friend? What if I'm not good at any of this? What if the sermon is just really stinky? What if all this stuff is bad? What if, what if I fail? And that fear can cause me to try to puff myself up, to try to overcompensate, to put people down, to be critical, to isolate myself. A number of things I can do simply because I'm afraid. This is the great weapon of Satan. This is the great weapon to cause us to run and retreat and kill ourselves in fright, even though we have the numbers and we have the, 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 the logistics to win on the battlefield. We get critical. We get fearful and we get critical. Something happens that reminds us fear is one of the hardest. Uh, when we have fearful memories, they're the hardest memories to get rid of. They stick in our brain and in our hearts the longest. Things that really frightened you, you'll never forget. It's really hard to forget those things. And we get critical, and then so someone does something that reminds us of what somebody else does, and then we get hypercritical because we think of, I don't want to get hurt again, or I don't want it to happen again like it did before. So I've got to come down on them, and I've got to, I've got to, I've got to be able to make my, I got to, so last time I was, I was too passive, so this time I'm going to overpower it with, or be active, or this time I'll never let it happen, or that will never happen to my family, or I'm never going to be the type of dad my dad was, or we do it all the time. We get really critical. We get defensive. That goes along with easily offended. We get really, we get fearful and people can't share things with us. They can't be open with us. We're just easily offended. Uh, we get real inflated and then the slightest little thing pops us. It, it rubs us the wrong way. We get defensive uh, because so much of our identity is wrapped up in what we're doing. If, if we're wrong in what we're doing, we're too afraid of what that means for validation. We get easily offended. We get angry. We get rageful. We get in fights. We argue. We try to win. We try to, we try to win the argument instead of listen. We manipulate. This is a big one for parents. We want our kids to do what we want them to do, so we manipulate them into getting them to do what we want them to do. We're afraid of what might happen if they actually had free will. What if they don't make the right choice? Let me manipulate them and get them to do what I want them to do. And lastly, we can hide sin. We sin, we get embarrassed, we get, we get uh, ashamed, and we don't want to be open or honest about it because we're afraid of what people might think or what they might say or how our stature might decrease in their eyesight. And so for all of us in that regard, I want to ask us, how is fear punishing you? Any of those things I just mentioned, how is fear punishing you? The other way that this can be mentioned is that fear uh, is not its own punishment, but fear includes punishment. And the word punishment, the only other time it's mentioned in the Bible is here in Matthew 25. And these will depart into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's the same word for punishment. So what that basically is saying is not that fear is its own punishment, but that if you do not, in fact, love your neighbor, it means you don't know God. If you don't really know God, then you should be afraid 
because the direction in which your life is heading is toward the inferno of hell. And so you actually, it is right that you should be afraid because you've made the, you've made the life, you've made the choice to live uh, uh, antithetically to God. And so that's also a scary one, but it's also true in a lot of ways. And so what do we do with all this? How do we live this life? And it's a surreal bummer of a sermon, Drew, you know, talking about hell. And now I got to go to lunch and think about hell as I dip into the chips and salsa. Just imagine the salsa being the flames of eternal <laughs> torment. Um, what do we do with all this? And it's important to give the demon a name. It's important to know who we're fighting. Yeah. And the challenge for all of us is we all have fear in some way. The question is, how much is fear a factor for us in our decision making? Are we driven by faith or are we driven by fear? And even though all those things can, can influence us, manipulation, inadequacy, we have someone that the verse says gives us the ability to know mutual, true love. And you notice in the passage it says, God, not that, love is not that we love God. Love is that he loved us first. Jesus took the first step. Isn't it incredible that Jesus, knowing that Judas would betray him, did not try to manipulate him out of fear. He loved him. Jesus, knowing that Peter, his guy, would mess up over and over and over again. Jesus did not get hypercritical of Peter. At the closest he gets in John 21 is he reminds him three times to love the flock. But he reinstates his brother Peter and he forgives Peter instead of being hypercritical and easily offended or defensive toward him. Uh, we don't see Jesus be petty on the cross. We see him be long-suffering and forgive people who don't even know what they're doing. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus was able to find forgiveness instead of manipulation. He was able to find kindness instead of pettiness and critical, a critical heart. And it's the amazing thing about Jesus, it's not that he wasn't tempted to be fearful. He was. When he went to the garden in Matthew 26, 36, Jesus is tempted to feel all of these things. And instead of trying to hide his sin and try to look strong, Jesus goes to, the, goes, goes to his father in the garden of Gethsemane and he is honest. He says, my God, my God, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. A lot of times we are afraid because of what might happen. Jesus was able to trust knowing what would happen. That he would actually suffer every fear he thought might occur. Jesus was, had, it in, he had it in spades. It was a guarantee. If Jesus can obey in the light of that, if Jesus can be kind in the light of misery, in the light of, of, of the divine wrath. You know, the, the passage says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word means he turned away God's wrath, 
which means only one thing, because sin doesn't go places. Sin has to be paid for. Jesus had to suffer God's wrath. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus was able to go to the depths of hell for you. He saw your heart to the bottom and he loved you to the skies. If Jesus can do that, and no matter what that verse means, whether it's its its own punishment or it has to do with punishment, either way, it means one thing. God does not want you to go through that. God has he's bent over backwards. God doesn't want his children to go through that. He doesn't want his children to go to the fire. He doesn't want you guys to live in the hell now. He wants us to be able to understand and experience mutual love because a relationship of mutual love has no room for fear. Amen. It has no room for fear. And that's the kind of relationship I want to be in. You ever been in a relationship where it's just everything's insecurity? It's like she texted someone else and you're like, who is that? What's his his, uh, name? Uh, Where's he from? How tall is he? And it's just insecurity. It's just everything about so many relationships in our, and your job. It's just insecurity of what your, your boss thinks. So many relationships are insecurity. How awesome is it that we get to have the ultimate relationship with mutual love? And when there's real love in Jesus, there's no room for insecurity. There's no room for fear. And so the question is, if we feel fearful this morning, why is it? How have we let Satan grab hold of us? How have we allowed... Satan to get a hold of our hearts because it's not you. It's not that I'm just not enough. And I, don't buy into the lies. You'll, 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 I'll, I'll never be good enough, right? You are good enough. If Jesus thought that you were, then by gosh, you are, okay? Amen. If Jesus considered you worthy to give up everything for, then believe that. Mm-hmm. Not what the world tells you. Mm-hmm. I want to I hear that from not from Joe Rogan, but from God. You know, Joe Rogan used to bring down the guy, the girl and say, evidently fear is not a factor for you. I want God to be able to bring us say, man, fear is not a factor for you. I can see that even though even though you didn't know what you were doing, you chose faith instead of fear. You chose to believe in God. You chose to trust. You chose to give over and over again. You went for it. You loved your brother. That's what this is all about, right? How you treat your brother or your sister. You love those around you. The only way we can really be kind to our brother, be kind to our sister, forgive, not manipulate, not be critical, overlook, easily overlook offenses, give second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, is if we can see Jesus in his love, and then it becomes so much easier to extend that to one another. And we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. You know, we live in a world that is overflowing with anxiety and fear and depression and mental health problems that are not going to go away anytime soon, not going to decrease anytime soon. And I believe the answer is not found uh, in any of these things that can help. Oh, therapy can help. Uh, medication can help. But the, there's not, not the ultimate answers. The ultimate answer is being able to find validation in something outside of the realm of you. Valid, validation outside of yourself in a truth that never moves. And a truth that will never change, no matter what our world does or what our world says or what the government does, that can bring peace. It does bring peace. And it allows us to be able to sing this song together as we close out that says, blessed quietness, holy quietness, what assurance in my soul. On a stormy sea, Jesus speaks to me and he makes the billows cease to roll. Church, let's all hear this from God. Let's go after this this week. Let's go for it as a team, as a family. And let's not have fear be a factor for us. Amen. And to God be the glory.